This podcast series is brought to you from the University of Winchester. We invite you to listen in as we talk with both academics and practitioners about their approaches to peace building and conflict transformation, discussing some of the most complex and pressing challenges we face in the world today. Good afternoon and a warm welcome to our latest podcast. I'm Dr Mark Owen from the University of Winchester. And today our podcast is going to focus on a conflict which has regrettably escalated in recent months. So I'm delighted today to be joined by a panel of experts to discuss this highly topical and very important issue. Um, And with several speakers joining us today, I want to apologise beforehand for the uh, abbreviated introductions which don't do justice to our guests today. Um, We begin today with a warm welcome to Dr Kavork Oskarnian. Kavork is an honorary research fellow in the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. Dr. Askanian's research interests include Eurasian politics and security, post-colonial and civilizational perspectives on Russian narratives of, of exceptionalism, as well as post-liberal approaches to state and international society in Eurasia and beyond. Thank you for joining us today, Kavork. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. So next, I would like to introduce Dr. Sossi Kasparian, who's a senior lecturer in politics, University of Stirling. Research interests and publications span diaspora studies, contemporary Middle East politics and society, nationalism and ethnicity, transnational political activism and refugee and migration studies. So welcome, Sossi, today. Thank you for the invitation. Excellent. And lastly, our very own Dr. Ulrike Zima, who is Senior Lecturer in Sociology in the Department for Applied Sciences, Forensics and Politics at the University of Winchester. Her research interests include youth, women, gender and diasporas in Russia, the Southern Caucasus and Eastern Europe. So, Kavork, if I could turn to you first, I think this is a conflict that perhaps not many of our listeners know that much about. Well, this is a a conflict over... um... Over, over a territory claimed by uh, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijanis and Armenians that is quite central to both people's historiographies. Now, if you look at the Armenian side, uh, when they talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, or as they call it, Artsakh, to them it's, um, it's an ancient province of medieval kingdoms of Armenia, and it's quite important to Armenians because of uh, the... Uh, the um, Particular, uh, particular role it played uh, in uh, in the history of Armenia following the fall of those kingdoms. So Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh was a place which remained autonomous or semi-autonomous long after those kingdoms had gone. It was ruled by um, by five princes uh, or dukes. Uh, they were called Meliks, Armenian Meliks, from the Middle Ages into the 18th century. Um, and that that uh, idea of Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, as you know, as a part of independent medieval Armenia that survived almost into the early modern age, is is very important to Armenians. Uh, on the Azerbaijani side, uh, you also have um, a historical narrative that puts a lot of emphasis on Karabakh's identity as an Azerbaijani piece of piece of land. So there. The, uh, the narrative centers on the Khanate of Karabakh. The Khanate of Karabakh was 
again, a, um, an 18th century uh, political entity, let's put it this way, under Persian suzerainty, founded by, uh, by um, an, uh, an Azerbaijan, a, a Turkic Muslim Khan called uh, Pana Ali uh, Khan, uh, who also founded uh, Shusha, as the Azerbaijanis know it, or Shushi, uh, which is a fortress town right uh, in the in the in the highlands of Nagorno-Karabakh, and that town also has an ex has um, special importance to the Azerbaijanis uh, because of its role in the development of Azerbaijani culture. Uh, quite a few poets, quite a few artists um, in in Azerbaijani uh, history were actually actually originated from Shusha or Shushi. Now, in the 19th century, Karabakh was incorporated into uh, into the Russian Empire. So it was transferred from the Persian to the Russian Empire through the Treaty of Gulistan in, 18, in 1813. And it is under the Russian Empire that, what you, that you see modernization and the emergence of nationalism during the 19th century on both sides. So by 1905, what you get in Karabakh uh, is competing nationalisms uh, between Azerbaijanis and uh, and Armenians, and you, and you get the first clashes, large-scale cl ethnic clashes between between the two sides. Uh, it's very important to emphasize that this is a modern uh, modern conflict. So 1905 is really the point at which you find the first really real ethnic or ethnically charged clashes between Armenians and Azerbaij Azerbaijanis. Partly because of emerging nationalism, also because of what happened, happen, happens in the Ottoman Empire in the decade before that. Uh, you had massacres of Armenians uh, in the Ottoman Empire, neighboring, um, uh, neighboring the Caucasus. Um, so that's the first, the first real outbreak of uh, ethnic violence. Uh, and yeah? No, I was just going to say, and, and before that, Armenians and Azerbaijans. Azerbaijanis basically lived side by side together in peace, or was it? And it, it, it yes, people, different groups ruled at different times. It was quite quite harmonious, actually. If you look at, for instance, the the town of Shusha, or Armen or as Armenians know it, Shushi, before 1920, that was a multi-ethnic town. And if you look at the South Caucasus in general, the South Caucasus is an extremely complicated region. It has a very complex history with shifting boundaries and intermingled uh, intermingled. Um, ethnicities and up to uh, up to the modern period ethnicity doesn't really play a role what is mostly you know you have you have, yeah, you have dynastic conflicts and so forth but it's actually you know it's much more complicated than what nationalists nation, nationalists would like you to believe um sorry can i slip in to yeah. add to your uh, question um what is now also interesting is that when you for example look at the neighboring country georgia there, there are uh, places where uh, Azeri and Armenians are actually uh, happily living together, trading and this stuff. So um, in, in other settings is similar. So we, we shouldn't forget that actually the cooperation is possible and in, in Georgia is still peaceful. And is that, is that narrative of contested history still something in people's consciousness today? Do they know about it? Do they discuss it? Or has that been lost in, in, in the historical uh, kind of past. No, it's absolutely. It's part of. It's a central part of the problem that I'll come back to. Uh, that yes. I'll come back to later, because uh, both sides have completely incompatible in, uh, uh, interpretations of history. They tend to write each other out of each other's histories, 
so on the Azerbaijani side, you have the argument the Armenians only arrived in the South Caucasus in the 19th century. And you know, there, there's a kind of a weird argument going on that the Armenians actually lived somewhere in, in, in to the southwest of, of, um, uh, of the South Caucasus, and then the Russians essentially imported them or encouraged their immigration into uh, into the South Caucasus. And on the Armenian side, you have you have an equivalent whereby the uh, the whereby the Azerbaijanis are essentially erased from history through the argument that oh Azerbaijan didn't exist before 1918. Because that's the point at which Azerbaijan was named Azerbaijan. And, and is uh, that something that's perpetuated through formal education processes? Yes. Is that in history books in schools? In textbooks, uh, in academic work, uh, and so forth. It's, it's really, it's, it's an absolutely toxic kind of, uh, kind of narrative that, that, that makes reconciliation extremely difficult because you have these very competing identities that are very deeply grounded in, in historical narratives uh, uh, clashing against each other. Nice. Um, and it, you know, it, it's not just the narrative about the conflict itself starting in 1905. It goes further than that. You know, the narrative about it's the, essentially the conflict projected backwards into history. Yeah. And yeah, that makes it very, very difficult. Thanks, Kavork. So, Sossi, I know you're uh, research looks at the role of the Armenian diaspora, both in, in terms of the, the most recent conflict, but also in, in previous outbreaks of violence. Can I just ask, how has the Armenian diaspora responded to this current round of violence? Um, thank you. Yes, um, what we're seeing really is the Armenian diaspora coming together in, in unity and really speaking in unison and responding to a crisis um, that certainly, you know, I've never seen in, in my lifetime. So, I mean, going back to this, there's sort of a truism here that unlike its materially rich uh, neighbours, Armenia's real wealth is its people. And, you know, these are the descendants of the Armenians who survived the 1915 to 23 genocide by the Ottoman Turkish state who arrived as refugees in their homes, who became diaspora, who instilled in their descendants, you know, not just the value of education and culture, of embracing the world and others as diasporans, but also to retain this sense of pride and dignity in having survived and endured. So Western diasporans, sort of no matter how they relate to or practice their Armenian identity, um, they share this thread of survival. So what we see here is that the war has mobilized this global diaspora in sort of unprecedented ways. And, you know, there's a number of reasons for this, but how it's being interpreted, certainly by the diaspora, is that Armenian existence is threatened genocidal narratives are normalized. We see Armenians in Artsakh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Armenia, in Istanbul, in France, in the US and other places being attacked um, by self-proclaimed heirs to the genocidal projects of 1915. Um, so again here, it's no wonder that you see Armenians from global celebrities to the tiniest of communities like the Ethiopian Armenians, highly mobilized, highly, highly united around 
what is happening and you know gravely concerned. And when you say mobilised, what, what in practical terms are they actually doing? So what we see is basically the usual forms of activism that, that that diaspora takes. So fundraising, humanitarian fundraising, advocacy of all sorts, awareness raising. We see attempts to lobby leaders, governments and solidarity building more broadly. So we're seeing the kind of full, full, the sort of broad church that is the Armenian diaspora and the transnational civil society of the Armenian diaspora, we see it fully motivated, mobilized, and really carrying um, heavy hearts and, and shouldering a heavy burden. And the context of this is this sort of massive power asymmetry that we see at play between, you know, tiny Armenia and its, and its bigger diaspora, slightly bigger diaspora, versus, you know, Azerbaijan and Turkey and, and allies. And this is an asymmetry in terms of, of course, global power and influence, wealth, connection um, and, and reach, as well as, of course, um, the sort of the Turkish and Azeri propaganda machine, uh, which is kind of shaping narratives and contributing to fueling and spreading uh, hatred against Armenians globally. And can I ask, as I was reading earlier today then, that, that Armenia is actually backed and supported by Russia in, in some sense, um, because they're part of the same pact. I mean, that sounds like a kind of, if you don't mind me challenging it a bit, a bit of a one-sided narrative about Azerbaijan, the power of Turkey, etc., behind this kind of small country of Armenia. But if they if they have got a relationship and backing by Russia, is that is that the reality of that that imbalance of power and relationships, or or is uh, is, is Russia not really an active supporter? I think we can all answer this one. Please. Russia and Armenia have a have a, a friendship treaty dating to, from nineteen ninety seven, and they're also part of the. Uh, sent, uh, uh, the CSTO. Yes. Uh, formally, that's an alliance between with and several other states. Can you just quickly explain what the CSTO is in in a couple of words? It's but... a class. It's a classical alliance. Um, so you know, like article, like NATO's Article Five, which obliges members to come to the aid of any other member when it's attacked. It has an Article Four, which pretty much uh, has the same has the same function. The problem is that many of the members of that CST of that alliance are actually quite pro-Azerbaijani, Kazakhstan and Belarus. Belarus, I think, is suspected of even uh, sending arms to Azerbaijan. So what did what Armenia did a few a few days ago? The Armenian Prime Minister was invoke the Friendship Treaty of '97, which also has a mutual assistance clause with Russia. Yes. Uh, the thing is that these treaties only apply to uh, the territory of the Republic of Armenia not Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. So, uh, you know, even if there were to be Russian aid, it would only uh, it would only kick in if Armenia proper were attacked. And that's ac that's actually been acknowledged by Russia. And Russia has actually so far tried to uh, tried to play a role because it has its own interests in uh, in Azerbaijan. It has an alliance with Armenia, but it also has a, a strategic partnership, what it refers to as a strategic partnership with, with Azerbaijan. And because it knows that 
unlike Armenia, Azerbaijan can actually move away from the from the Russian orbit, as it has done to some extent by by essentially inviting in uh, inviting Turkey in uh, as as an active uh, as an active uh, how would I say a provider of assistance uh, in 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 the current war. Um, it, it plays this kind of very cautious cautious role, uh, or it has played played this very cautious role up to this point. Although it has also made clear its irritation at the presence of Syrian mercenaries in the in the conflict zone, which is one of its classical bogeymen. You know, the the fear that they might somehow uh, affect processes in the North Caucasus, in the Russian-controlled North Caucasus. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Kabul. I'd just like to turn to Ulrika and just, I know, Ulrika, your research has looked at the, the kind of societal level impact of prolonged protracted conflict on this region. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you, given there's been no real peace in the sense of positive peace or transformation within the region, the societies affected by it for as long as 30 years now, what, what effects has this had on the society before this current war and during the, the current outbreak of violence? Um, yeah, I have mainly focused on, on women and societal transformation. Um, what literally the situation um, we have now have, have has shown that basically all the kind of reconciliation uh, practices, peace, you know, what NGOs do haven't really worked. And this is also when, when we look at, for example, in 2000, this is also because society is militarized, which is overall influencing every aspect of life. So that means whatever you do, is all about the military. So that means, for example, in 2000, 2019, the Global Militarization Index, mm. uh, which is uh, GMI, a German-based uh, Bonn International Center, um, highlighted that in, in Europe, Armenia was uh, claimed to be the highest militarized society. In, in terms of world, um, it, it comes in a top list of uh, militarized countries after uh, Israel and Singapore. So Azerbaijan is one of the highest militarized as well. So that shows you the scale of the conflict. So that, uh, in terms of militarization and looking at, I mean, I've specifically looked at the effects of living in Nagorno-Karabakh mm. as an Armenian, what this does to, 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 to women, for example. And when society is uh, militarized, it means total complying, compliance and anything uh, what women do is, is kind of in relation to this uh, militarization, to the army, to whatever you do. And for example, uh, which is a sad quote, but also one of my most favorite quotes highlighting the fact living under this prolonged conflict that any moment something can happen. When a woman says, uh, explained to me in an interview, every woman in Karabakh wakes up in the morning. The first thing she does is check the news of casualties on the line. This is the long contact line um, with, with Azerbaijan. And she does this before she brushes her teeth, has a shower or breakfast, or even before she puts makeup on. So the, the, the issue with this is that even the most normalized days in life start with a militarized aspect you you 
check whether anyone you know um, has been yeah. killed or, or something. And the point with this is that although we we think differently about it, that means that the, this um, normalization of fear isn't even noticed in life. And since, so the, the, the point is, uh, since 1994, there have always been some casualties on the uh, borderline. So pretty much any family is affected, lives with the idea that anyone could die at any moment, which then is normalized to the point that when you ask women about what about your son joining the army uh, next next year, you get the answer, yeah, that's the way it is, uh, with a smile kind of thing, because you can't argue against it. Uh, military service is two years for, for every uh, soldier, um, male person, which is uh, much longer than in other countries. Um, what else uh, can I say in terms of, and then obviously um, what, what is a bigger issue, because the conflict has been frozen, it hasn't been solved. That means issues like trauma, which are present because uh, aren't dealt with. And if some of the women's project try to deal with trauma, this is then becomes a kind of, uh, uh, how could you say, a very patriotic uh, aspect because a nation proud of their homeland don't experience trauma as such, but the trauma is alive. And I know, I know you've been working um, with some women's groups and organisations who are yeah. trying to do something about the, this kind of endemic militarisation yeah. of the society. I mean, yeah. what kind of reaction have they had or impact with their work? Well, th this is another thing uh, which which is a big impact that women's organisations do have naturally been fighting a lot of different causes. So dealing with trauma, which which is in effect that comes from having this sort of war, um, has been uh, criticised heavily uh, by, by nationalist groups. Um, so th th there have been lots of negative uh, things. And just to highlight, um, not long ago, and, and this is the um, sad thing about this militarization that it is like an ideology everyone lives under. Um, not long ago, on the 20th, I think it was in September, just before the outbreak of the war, the the um, head of state, Hakobian, did post military pictures to appeal for peace. Yes. As in with a gun and and uh, claiming a new initiative, is a country where is a new pro, pro uh, program where women uh, should kind of experience military training. Yes. Um, or should be able to uh, do military training. And, and the point is, again, this shows this ideology is all embracing and, and even peace, the concept of peace is only uh, perceived in the way that's um, um, not in terms of soft power, but hard power. So peace can only ach be achieved by fight, as in by winning. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's kind of um, the uh what would you say the uh neg the, the very negative uh way of being and just to before i finish i think i hope i have described this militarization all surrounding uh ideology 
in, in Karabakh, I, I was also in my interviews explained how citizenship is formed around this militarization thinking. Mm. And one uh, kind of female uh, interview did say that Nagorno-Karabakh is in many ways unique. It is small, people know each other, and the constant security threats create a condition where every citizen feels responsibility for their country. Homeland is not an imagination. Everyone knows that every family has lost someone. Therefore, everyone is doing their utmost to the well-being of society and our republic. So the point is, on the one hand, is a really good sense of belonging. But on the other hand, this militarization leads to the fact that as soon as something happens, everyone is ready to take up guns and go. Yes, yes. So... And uh, there was a really moving, actually, short film, I don't know if you saw it on the BBC, that really confirmed everything you said. And I think there was eight women in the room, and they yeah. also had someone been killed in their family, whether it was a son, a father, a brother, or a husband. So, like you say, that level of trauma and those conditions of, of stress they must live under, you know, is hugely, hugely damaging for people, you would imagine. And can I just say one thing when you say this, I've watched this BBC film as well. What uh, I went to Nagorno-Karabakh just after the two, uh, 2016 four-day war in April, so I was there in September, and the emotions were really high. But what has also happened, and it was the case is now, that many women have actually fought in the 1994 war, and now they are fighting as well, or say they have experienced the war. And then these days, you know, uh, uh, you read these posts on, on Facebook and friends tell you that some of them in, in say, in their 40s, 50s have actually uh, had like 30 years of war in their life, being Armenians uh, returning to Armenia from, from Libya and other places to help build out the country. And now they have the situation again that they have war. So you, you're talking about a whole set of generations having lived under constant threat, under constant war, which surely can't be good for uh, health uh, for health and well-being, if you like. So, and these women on the BBC have experienced the 1990s wars as well, so. Yeah, indeed. No, thank you. Thank you, Ulrika, and thank you, everybody. I think we've got a fairly good idea from that, that, that kind of round of, of discussion of the cause of the conflict, the current state. Mm -hmm. uh, of the situation at the moment and I just wanted to then start thinking potentially how this conflict could be resolved, transformed, however we might want to think about it and I, from my understanding uh, at one time, I mean there's been several rounds of obviously ceasefires, periods where there's been no fighting that's only to have flared up again later and I know during uh, the, the the period of the Velvet Revolution, it was called, wasn't it? In 2018 in Ma Armenia, there was real hope for some type of uh, final resolution to this conflict. And Kavork, if I can just turn to you and ask, could you just say something about, you know, why why were those those hopes for a resolution raised at that time, and um, why why were they subsequently it seems dashed or, or failed um, in the meantime? Well, firstly, you should know that you know the, the negotiations process has pretty much been uh, been stuck for the past twenty or so years, or at least nineteen years. I mean, it started right after the nineteen ninety four ceasefire, um, which of course settled into the situation that we had for a very long time, whereby the Armenians controlled Nagorno Karabakh proper, so the Upper Karabakh, the uh, mountainous part of Karabakh, but also the plains around it. Um, 
And um, there were several close calls when it came to resolving that conflict. One was in 1997, when the first president of, uh, of uh, post-Soviet Armenia uh, agreed to a step-by-step -step solution, tried to sell it to his own population, and was then removed in a palace coup in 1998. And then in 2001, you had negotiations in Key West, organized by the United States, where the father of the current Azerbaijani president, uh, Haidar Aliyev, came almost came to an agreement with the then Armenian president, Robert Kocharyan, uh, which was, a, which was a, basically on a package solution that would result in a referendum on the Gorno-Karabakh self-determination. In that case, uh, Heydar Aliyev went back to Azerbaijan and reportedly was told by his, by his advisors, you can't sell that to your population, uh, there will be major unrest. And since then, you basically have had very little in terms of, uh, you know, uh, a rapprochement between the two sides. And then, of course, 2018 happens. Uh, and the two reasons why there was optimism, on the one hand, because it was a democratic revolution, and on the other hand, because it was a generational change uh, in Armenia. Uh, I, think, I think in both cases, uh, the optimism was misplaced. Firstly, because you know, just because you have a democratic revolution, that doesn't mean that you will move towards peace. It actually, there, there's a good argument to be made that it actually made things more complicated because added to the competing nationalisms and the competing interpretations of history, you get you know, a greater dif distance in terms of the political systems in Armenia and Azerbaijan. One of the things that you also hear in Armenia nowadays, in, in, in Karabakh nowadays, is why should we submit to a dictator, to a dynastic dictatorship? So rather than you know, having facilitating a solution and actually made it more more complicated quite apart from the you know there's plenty in political science that says that you know democratic peace only works between two mature democracies rather than uh, you know within a single democracy so that's one one argument but there's another reason as well and that's the nixon in china argument the previous two presidents of armenia were both natives of karabakh and they were both veterans of the 91-94 war. So if anyone could have sold a, a compromise solution, it would have been them. The problem with the new prime minister and his team was that they were a new generation. Uh, they hadn't, they're, they're not from Karabakh, they, they, they don't have military experience. And that makes it much more difficult. You, know, you have to establish your credentials as, as um, uh, as someone who is able to deal with with the adversary, uh, he had Pashinyan, the new prime minister, did, did, and just as it took Nixon to open up, you know, the, with his anti-communist credentials to open up uh, to China, or Begin, you know, the with his very strong Zionist credentials to make peace with uh, uh, with Assad, uh, it would have taken, you know. It, Pashinyan himself lacked that kind of that kind of authority, and he was actually attacked from more nationalist circles quite like regularly because of that. Uh, and that actually, you know, it also explains the the more uncompromising noises he made, perhaps, which were then interpreted in a certain way in, in Baku, which then precipitate where we are now. Um, uh, and then there's a final thing as well. If you're elected and you're accountable to your electorate, and your electorate is really, really has Nagorno-Karabakh as one of its core foundational values, 
it, it really is very difficult to then start changing that kind of that kind of uh, early wave refers to, refers to it as sedimentation that has the kind of crystallized narrative um, and that's you know that's what Pashinyan was confronted with so when 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 the negotiators told Aliyev and Pashinyan now go I think it was in 2019 go and prepare your populations for peace you know, as if they were Moses coming down from the mountain with, I don't know, with the Ten Commandments to sell to their own populations. It's not as easy as that. You know, it, these kinds of narratives are not as malleable as people want, want to think. And I think this episode after 2018 certainly showed that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Paul. Yeah. So, Sossi, turning to you, it's just made me think, what what role, given the, the, the situation we're in at the moment, and it's... Uh, and the intractable nature of the conflict, what role, if any, has uh, the diaspora got in helping build a more sustainable, effective peace process? And is there actually an ap appetite amongst the diaspora for this? I think at the moment, really, the, the diaspora is um, speaking from a place of crisis and responding to, to crisis. So the focus is very much on the suffering going on, uh, you know, the results of the war, and what's happening there and so on. In terms of peace building, um, long term, at the moment, I, I don't see many signs within the diaspora of constructive uh, engagement um, and how the diaspora can play a role in this. Again, I think this is maybe not the right moment for this within mm. diaspora discussions. I think this will come later, mm. but there's a lot of disillusionment amongst the Armenian diaspora uh, in terms of just the failure of global solidarity, um, the lack of interest, the lack of support, even from allies within a wider um, solidarity and kind of reconciliation uh, movement that's been happening in the last 15 years, for example, with, with Turkish civil society and Kurdish civil society activists and academics who have been pretty much silent, you know, throughout this period. So there's a lot of soul searching and I would say also a lot of trauma going on within transnational Armenian civil society whilst trying to process and deal with um, you know, a very, a very difficult situation where I, another thing I want to add here that sort of responds to some of what Ulrika was saying as well, and in contrast to the 94 situation, the connection between the diaspora now and Armenia, the Republic of Armenia now is, 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 is very different to what it was in 94. Okay, what we have seen really, um, particularly in the last decade, we've seen, um, you know, the war in Syria and the increasingly inhospitable political and economic conditions in Lebanon and Turkey, mm -hmm. which has meant that many Armenians, diaspora and Armenians who for generations have lived in the Middle East, have had to take refuge in Armenia. And here, you know, joining earlier waves of refugees and migrants from Azerbaijan, from Iran, Palestine, Iraq, Egypt, and of course, before that, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. At the same time, we, we have seen a number of Western Armenian diasporans move to Armenia since the Velvet Revolution, you know, sort of 
to support this fledgling democracy and, you know, to, to put it idealistically, to sort of make a difference. Um, so the connection between this worldwide diaspora and Armenia, I would say, is, is much closer. It feels much more intimate a situation than it was previously. Um, and here, you know, what Ulrika was saying, you know, people growing up from, you know, one war to the other, basically, especially in the case of Syria and Lebanon, this is, this is a very serious concern because Armenia has sort of, you know, tried to brand itself as a kind of homeland for prospective diasporans, you know, for many decades. But what we, what we have seen in practice is that Armenia has served as a site of refuge and a site of sanctuary for, you know, refugees, uh, you know, from Syria and, and other places uh, mm. that I mentioned. So for the diaspora, this, um, you know, it's very important that Armenia is safe, that Armenia can fulfill this role of being a sanctuary and a refuge and a potential homeland for Armenians. And what they see here is, you know, that being threatened along with their homes of long standing in Lebanon, in Syria and throughout the Middle East and, of course, in Turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, Sassi, I should have asked you this right at the beginning. Could you give us a, just a, a rough indication of the size of the diaspora, where they're mainly located and how, how that is um, in relation to the, the percentage of Armenians that, that actually live in Armenia? So what proportion live outside? Okay, there's officially three million population in Armenia. Uh, the, the numbers for the diaspora are hard to ascertain. It's difficult in terms of, you know, self-identities. and. But I would say probably about eight million. Would you agree, Ulrika and Kevork? Yeah. Yeah, something so, like that. Something like eight million uh, Armenian diasporans globally. And it is very much a global diaspora. Um, and again, you know, I don't want to sort of homogenize or sort of flatten the the uh, the, the great diversity within the diaspora. Um, and the, the, the core of the diaspora is still, you know, the descendants of the genocide um, and the sort of heartlands of the diaspora have historically been the Middle East countries. So very large population in Lebanon and, of course, also Syria tragically has been changing but throughout throughout the Arab countries but what we have seen really since the 70s uh, with the civil war in Lebanon and other difficulties in the region and also nationalization in places like Egypt in the 50s what we see is an exodus of Armenians you know mostly to to North America so uh, we have a, a large uh, community in Los Angeles in particular in the US but also in New York and, and other places we have quite a big presence in Canada we also see um, in Europe the biggest Armenian community is in, is in France um, in the Middle East uh, the, the biggest Armenian community is, is still in Lebanon we also have, of course, just to add to the sort of heterogeneity of the diaspora, we have, you know, waves of, of different uh, arrivals within the diaspora. Of course, the post-Soviet Armenians, which now uh, comprise quite a, a significant presence within the global diaspora. And again, you know, I want to stress also not just the heterogeneity and the diversity within the diaspora, uh, composed of all these different places of origins and and backgrounds and priorities and so on, 
but to stress that you know this this war has been a unifying moment uh, where you know these different waves have sort of put these differences aside and there are many differences you know the, the, the diaspora has has you know we can't talk of a diaspora in the singular in this unified mm. way when it would much better to talk about diaspora communities but as we all know all those of us who've done research on a diaspora community even these are you know very much um uh, have lots of differentiations within often bitterly divided as well but this war has uh unified really because it is a moment of emergency it is interpreted and experienced as an existential threat certainly in the narratives and in a lot of the kind of prevailing ways that this war is being experienced by the diaspora yeah Thank you very much, Sosina. That was that was an excellent insight. I didn't realise the size of the diaspora outside Armenia. I mean, it's a significant proportion, isn't it? So, Ulrika, turn back to you again, then, please. I mean, given your experience of working with people, uh, I, I know are mainly women on the ground in the region. I mean. How do people see the future there? What what next? Can there be a reconciliation? You know, despite that significant, um, you know, kind of process of militarization within the region, is there any hope for peace for people on the ground? Well, I at the moment it is a difficult situation to actually think about it. You know, at the moment politically, we need to get a ceasefire as soon as possible. Um, so the the things i've been thinking about in in respect to your answer feel very utopian at the moment um the the issue is uh, when you say even if this highly militarized even uh, even with a ceasefire this ideology will continue the the prop the, the biggest issue is and i think kivok said it as well that all approaches so far have been really not right and you know, being a sociologist, I think a lot of this uh, reconciliation efforts have to come, have to be revisited and actually start from a different point. And Sossi has highlighted it, I have highlighted it. Um, it has to kind of come from within society. Uh, individuals have to be included oh, because, hmm? okay. sorry, uh, because. Um, you know, a whole generation, two generations have been affected by war. Uh, in both society, displacement is is a big issue. There, uh, there are still almost close to three hundred, more than three hundred thousand people displaced on the Azerbaijani side from from the nineteen nineties conflict. In Armenia, there are also still people living in dormitories from the nineteen nineties, kind of. So the question of displacement is linked to trauma. So we need to really think about this. I would say, um, I think Kivork has at the beginning of this talk indicated that the history has to be uh, kind of revisited, rewritten. Sosi has highlighted the level of trust in, in Armenian society has completely uh, almost disappeared because the involved uh, actors to solve the solution go like, oh, this is an extremely uh, difficult situation. It needs to be solved, but nothing happens. And actually allowing things to be set by, by some of the actors, which indicates a level of hate shouldn't, shouldn't be accepted by uh, the, the international community who is ever dealing with it. However, if 
we have a ceasefire and I would say it really um, what all my writing is about, we need to engage with the experience of war. We, war is not just physical, war is not just political, war is emotional. We need to rework what has happened. We need to kind of try to shape cultural memory in, in terms of looking at similarity instead of difference. I mean, it sounds utopian, but uh, so far, I think Sosi said it as well in Kivok, everything has been like pointing guns at each other. We literally need to probably look at things like uh, works like Emmanuel Kant, Perpetual Peace to create the awareness that we are all human beings in, 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 in this sense. So, and yes, I think a best start would be with all these young people who actually hate the enemy, who have never seen the enemy, you know, who have physically not even have never talked to the other side in a, in a normal way. And after the 1990s, there have been some projects doing that, bringing um, NGO workers together, mm -hmm. but these efforts were really minor. And then uh, bureaucracy, uh, having one year project, two years projects, and then ticking the boxes and then it stops, but that's not the way it goes. Mm -hmm. One thing, what I find really disturbing, uh, especially this time now, and it reminds me of what Baudrillard called uh, um, uh, postmodernist war, this hyper reality. In this war, what we see, obviously, there has been, from the Azerbaijani point, having a really dehumanizing media campaign on social media, attacking scholars, talking about discussing the war in, in, in really the most bold ways I have ever seen it, videos being posted. And anyone who is involved in this is, is literally kind of living a hyper reality, which doesn't help to bring the nations together anyway. So in, in this way, you know, the blurring between fact and fiction has become really bad to the point that whatever can happen, but we really need to engage with, with this kind of experience of war as well. And obviously in, in, in our age of social media, we, uh, whatever we could do, this needs to kind of be stopped as well. And that's what I mean with this uh, um, playing, looking more at peace, you know, instead of focusing on all the negative thing, we need to think of more togetherness, if that's possible, as I highlighted at the beginning, that there are actually Azerbaijan communities living together peacefully, so maybe that would be an approach. However, at this stage, this won't be possible. So it, yeah. I'm talking about a very long future ahead. So, yeah. but I had to say. So. Yeah, no, it seems extremely difficult. If you're saying, which I, th I think you mentioned earlier, almost talking about peace or thinking about becoming more understanding, it's almost seen as being a traitor because it's not supporting or upholding that nationalist militarization yeah. agenda. Can I just want to add one little tiny bit what I forgot to say? You know, after the Velvet Revolution in Armenia 2018, the Ministry of Education, they have started some really great projects to to change school textbooks in terms of less militarization in the educational system. But that was, I'm not sure how it works now, but it's little things like that kids don't count soldiers to learn maths, but actually see other pictures. So there have been some some very, very good uh, um, attempts and maybe Kivok, you wanted to say something about this. What yeah. was it? Preparing the population for peace. Uh, cool. oh, preparing the populations for peace. 
Uh, yeah, uh, you, you refer to the uh, to the um, to the NGOs that try to somehow bring people together. Uh, NGOs like uh, conciliation resources. Uh, I'm afraid that you know, with the car as long as the current war is going on, it's it's pointless about to talk to either side about such reconciliation, because right now both societies are fully geared towards the war effort. Yes. Um, but once there is a solution, once there is a ceasefire, sorry, once there is ceasefire. You will have to revisit peace building again, uh, and there, you know, it, it is. I've always been a very, very. I've always been very pessimistic when it comes to peace building, precisely because these the because of the deep seated narratives. And what you will have to do is look at it in terms of several layers that you have to work through before you can think about some kind of re reconciliation. So layer one has already been attempted, kind of by different NGOs, bringing people together. The problem is that when you have these initiatives, they come together, they have a good time, perhaps talk a bit about more contentious issues, and they go straight back into their, into their societies where they're disciplined back into the nationalist orthodoxies that exist. So that in itself won't do it. You know, even if you expand the kind of effort that you've seen in, in previous years, that is not in itself enough. So you'll have to talk about the contentious issues, things like the conflict itself. But there's been some work on that. You know, there was this brilliant film by Conciliation Resources, Parts of a Circle, uh, which uh, which some of you might might have seen, which was basically co-production organized by Conciliation Resources between Armenian and Azerbaijani filmmakers dealing with the contentious issues of the, of the conflict. But that that is that in itself is 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 a is an isolated case. You know, both societies are still very much apart. Um, but let's say that if you can come to some kind of agreement on that, you ha then have to go to an even deeper narrative, and that's the historical narrative I talked about. Yes. So very often what you see when Armenian and Azerbaijani intellectuals try to interact is that they end up in kind of monologues, parallel monologues, with completely incompatible versions of history uh, uh, confronting each other. It's almost as if they're repeating the, I don't know, the arguments that they used to make in front of the Central Committee in Moscow or the, uh, or the, I don't know, the Soviet Academy of Sciences, you know, representing their own so uh, Soviet republics. So you, you, get, you have to get people out of that kind of self-contained narrative. And the only way you can do that productively is through critical, through critical attitude. What is lacking in both societies is self-criticism, you know, the, the reflexive attitude that you should have when you when you start engaging in scholarship is very often absent. You have to start questioning your own assumptions. Then you have to start questioning the assumptions that live within your society, and then maybe you'll have a dialogue that, you know, th that produces the kind of shared notion of history that that Ulrike referred to, and that's very much missing. And that's very crucial because if you look at the South Caucasus and its history and its complexities, the only way you're going to productively approach the historical issues connected to this conflict and many others is by looking at it holistically, looking at it as one integrated region with, with an immensely complex shifting boundaries, intermingled uh, populations, uh, different empires and so forth. That's the only way you can do that. Otherwise, you will just have two people stuck in a completely different universe. Thanks, Kevog. Yeah. So, I think you were going to say something, please. Uh, actually, um, Kevog said it for me. I, I, I was going to say that we really 
can't start talking about peace until the war ends. Mm. You know, this is this has really got to happen first. Yes. And can I just add to that just um, last thing? Um, and this has been the whole issue in the last 30 years because there has never been a clear status decision or you know there has never been a clear solution to the conflict yeah. so that means like little things like what i said about trauma that you can have like they did um following the the bosnian war uh, establishing international uh, criminal tribunals mm -hmm. all these things haven't been dealt with so there is a huge baggage of dealing with the you would call negative past so and even though as i said it's all utopian but yeah similarity is probably better to work with similarity than what Georg said. So that, that's and the uh, difficult thing about the conflict. It's quite central because you have fear and grievance on all sides. Yeah. And you know, people, I, I was actually quite surprised when they came up with this idea of preparing populations for peace when they hadn't thought about that for 20 years. You know, they should have done that 20 years, they, they should have started doing that 20 years ago. And they should have been much more concrete about the kind of plans, you know, the, the whole, um, the whole negotiations process has been very much veiled, be, been conducted behind a veil of secrecy. Well, mostly been conducted behind a veil of secrecy. And it's not, yeah. Yes, Louise. Sorry. Yeah. No, and that was my point as well when you say preparing the population for peace. You prepare the population for peace not by emphasizing military and by giving women, uh, you know, education in how to hold a gun. You, you uh, prepare the population for peace by meeting each other you know or talking to each other or whatever you can do and probably presenting some positive images on social media but at the moment that's not even a point yeah, at the moment i mean it's, it's, it's completely yeah i know talk about it uh, as long as the war is going on as long as we don't know where you know because right now new grievances are being created uh, yes. a whole new layer of, of pain and grievance that will come out that will have to be dealt with uh, you know, and depending on how the war goes, uh, it might end up, you know, aggravating things to such a degree that there, there will not yes. be any kind of uh, reconciliation. Decades. I've always stuck in a fairly classic cycle of violence at the moment, isn't it? Where, as you say, you know, renewed violence breeds renewed enmity, you know, more grievances. And obviously, at some point, if that's not dealt with, it will just resurface again. Can I just say when you say this grievances, you know what we haven't mentioned this whole uh, podcast yet, you know that uh, very soon after it started, uh, half of the 60% of the population in Karabakh are now actually uh, displaced. It, this, uh, what was it, 70,000 uh, mm -hmm. have been displaced uh, as in living now in Armenia. Uh, these are mainly women and, and children and elderly. But when you look at this, and you know, I talked about this double trauma that hasn't even been dealt with. For example, in, in April 2016, uh, when there was the four day war, three villages had to be um, evacuated. So the estimation was about 5,000 people to be evacuated. And I'm pretty sure these uh, people have been evacuated again if, if they ever returned. And most of them, again, is children, women, and elderly people. So the, the, the point is talking about the negative. Uh, memory uh i wouldn't know how long you even take to overcome this just to say the scale of the the damage what is now and i think today was it today news was that something like 40 percent of stepana is in ruin 
the the capital of Nagorno-Karabakh. Sorry, I didn't say. So, so yeah. And added to that, of course, now you have you know the whole trauma of 1915. Yes. You're torn open in a very dramatic way because because of the the involvement of Turkey on the Azerbaijani side. Uh, the Armenian media referred to the war as the war against the Turco-Azerbaijani terrorist aggression uh, as, a, as a matter of routine. And it, I, I don't think it's just in the, in the diaspora, but it's also in Armenia proper that that is, you know, it's, it's the complete revisiting of all these traumas that remain, yes. that remain out there, unaddressed, uh, unrecognized, that have bubbled yeah. to the surface, the surface again. Yeah. And that is, it's, you know, you have to understand, 1915 is one of the drivers of Armenian insecurities. It is one of the original drivers of the whole Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Um, <clears throat> Armenians associate Azerbaijanis uh, with Turkey. Rightly or wrongly, they do that. Um, yeah. And that has completely opened up these, these wounds again. Yes. Okay, thank you, Kavork. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our podcast. One hour, wow. <laughs> yeah, I want to thank you all wow. for offering some fascinating insight into what is obviously an extremely difficult uh, situation. Uh, you know, obviously the signs at the moment are not that positive, but we very much hope things at least de-escalate in the very near future and then hopefully progress to the type of work that you've all been talking about with us today. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.